This episode was previously recorded using our old podcast name. To find out more about why we decided to change our name, listen back to episode 32 entitled, Why We Changed Our Name. Hey friends, welcome to Kings and Queens, a podcast about life and ministry in the kingdom of God. My name is Joseph, and typically on this podcast, I'm sitting with my wife, Nicole, in our home here in Spokane, Washington, and talking with her about our journey of faith and what we've been learning about ourselves and the world around us. In today's episode, I am joined by literally one of my heroes. I have the privilege and honor of sitting down with Irene Cho and talking with her about her experience in youth ministry and how we as the church can move out of spaces of toxic theology and abusive patterns of discipleship with our young people and move into liberating and inclusive and empowering spaces of hope and love. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Well, welcome back, friends. It is great to be with you all again. Today is literally going to be amazing. Sometimes you send a DM or an email to someone asking them to be on your very small, zero budget, not legit podcast. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking they probably won't even read this. And if they do, there's no way they're actually going to say yes. And yet here we are. Irene was gracious enough to block out a little bit of time to be with us, and I'm so, so excited to hear her thoughts and perspective on something that I have been passionate about for a very long time. So, Irene, thank you so much for being with us. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for the hefty intro. (laughs) No pressure on me. (laughs) I mean, no pressure, but you're literally one of my heroes, so... I'm very honored. It's just because I say all the shit all the time. (laughs) That's right. I love it. I love it. Uh, Well, before we dive into today's conversation, I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself and give us a sense of what it means to be Irene in this season of your life. Okay. Um, That's a pretty hefty, like, first date question that you get asked a lot. This is the problem also. So I was a later bride. And, you know, when you start getting into dating in your late 30s, just so much life shit happens that like going on a first date of trying to tell you about your story. I'm like, that's just going to go through the whole first date. And I don't know if I'd want to go on a second date after that. I cannot Um, imagine. I got (laughs) Nicole and I got married when we were like babies, basically. And so I'm like like the 19 year old. Oh, yeah. Right out of Bible school. Yeah. Right. Done with school. It's like we got to get married ASAP. (laughs) I want to have sex so badly. Yeah, that was definitely us. What about you? Um, Well, I was rebellious. So I, you know, I have had such an interesting journey. Like I was so the good kid, the good girl, you know, the little obedient sheep um, daughter, you know, worker in the church, et cetera. But what's really interesting is I... I started going to church when I was nine. Uh, my mom took me. We, I grew up in a Pentecostal setting, so very assemblies of God, uh, lots of you know spiritual gifts, activities, interaction with the Holy Spirit type of thing. And then when my parents separated um, to get divorced, I was, uh, well, I started going to church. Actually, I got saved when I was eight. Yeah, like eight, something like that. And then we took off for New York when I was nine. So I'd only really been in the church for a year, had this 
you know, perception, always kind of understood God as this big supreme being. I always pictured him with a turban, you know, not shirtless with a, you know, some kind of covering or whatever, yeah, <laughs> sitting on totally. clouds. This is my perception yep. of God as a kid, right? Very scary, very like gigantic, um, judgmental type of, you know, view. And so I, because I think of my charismatic background, you know, the way that I had interacted with God was still very personal. And so I would have direct conversations with God, but, you know, having moved to New York, which, you know, when you're in the middle of fifth grade, you're moving to New York in the middle of February, where it's freaking cold from oh. Southern California, like wow. in this very, very, it was like 85% Jewish and white community, um, being the only one of four Asian Americans who was, you know, born here fluent in English because the other uh, Asian kids were Japanese exchange students because their parents like worked in Toyota Corporation or whatever. They didn't know any English except to yell, run up to people and yell, fuck you, fuck you to everybody. Literally, that's all they that they would do. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, and I'm Asian. So we're going to go with the hashtag Asian don't raise it. So I'm like 10 years old and I look like I'm six. Okay. Um, and I, everybody says, everybody has said it to me, you know, you're going to like it. It's so much better when you're older and you look so much younger, which I will say now at the right young age of 46, it is so much better to look younger when you are older. But nobody wants to hear that when they're 11 years old going into puberty and all of your classmates are blossoming and filling up in areas that you are very, very, very far away from. Yes. Right? Yes. So it was a very disturbing, upsetting, angry time period. And I was extremely angry with God. Um, I wasn't getting along with my mom at all. She was so on edge, you know, now as an adult, I completely understand divorce was such a taboo thing, not just within the United States, but in Korean culture, like it was not at all acceptable. Right. And so we moved across the country for her to just get away and be towards her family and all of the things. And so it was not a happy time period during the most prime, what we would say in youth ministry, like one of the most prime time periods of, of somebody to get to know God, right. And have their faith formed. Um, so it was a, a lot of, you know, cussing at God, not understanding lots of big why questions about life, you know, which middle school period time period is so crucial for a lot of social justice and justice awareness and unfairness and things in the world that like suffering and all of those big meta questions that middle schoolers ask, right? Or even if they don't ask, they're definitely thinking about it, you know, and if they, if you give them a space to ask, then they will ask, be asking these meta questions. Yeah. So I'm in that space. Um, and we then moved from New York to Philly when I got, when I was going into the 10th grade, so 15 years old. Um, and we, I begrudgingly went back to church. My mom went back to church. So during that whole middle school, you know, upper elementary middle school time period, my mom was also not going to church at all. Um, and when we moved uh, closer to my cousins, my mom found a, a very, 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 very small Pentecostal, very Pentecostal <laughs> church. Um, like we had people, there was a house that our church owned where people would drive in for, you know, healing 
demon possession, like all of these things that, you know, if you were part of charismatic world, you will have had some form of interaction. And I swear, the, I swear the house was haunted. There were, there are so many stories about that house. It's, <laughs> it's like the conjuring kind of literally Like a woman, she has no association with the church came to visit because her husband needed some prayer healing physically, like he had some kind of ailment. And she was saying how um, she woke up in the middle of the night and her husband, she thought was standing over her. And then she felt something stirring next to her and she turned around and her husband was sleeping next to her. And she looked back and there was nobody standing over her anymore. Like just crazy Wild. stories like that. Wild. <laughs> um, so, you know, when I got back to faith, I had a very spiritual encounter um, that brought me back into the folk, you know, faithful. Um, and I don't know if I really would have returned had it not been some kind of like existential experience like that. Um, and so from that point, you know, my, I had, I was very on fire for God, but still, you know, my dream was to be a journalist. I wanted to be the next Connie Chung. Christiana Amanpour was still not really at the beginning of her career. Right. I, and we didn't have cable news. Yeah. So wanted to be Connie Chung, wanted to like, you know, have the penthouse in New York, be high powered, all these things. And as I was applying or looking into colleges, you know, junior year, um, I, I got called by God um, very distinctly uh, saying I was praying for my dad who had has been an alcoholic. Later, I found out he was also abusing drugs, um, was praying for him and the rest of my dad's side of the family. We have a very unique history. My great grandfather was one of the first Christian converts in Korea when, you know, the 1907 revival happened. Wow. Um, so one of the big, you know, founding church planters in the area. Um, and then my grandfather, when Japan came and occupied Korea, they, my great grandfather, my grandfather ended up being incarcerated by the Japanese government, um, demanding that they renounce their faith. And that my, I think that messed my grandfather up, um, totally. and psychologically, emotionally, and then his theology got really jacked up. Right. And, you know, it was a time period where there, there wasn't necessarily like rigid schooling that I was able to go to for my seminary background, et cetera. So his theology kind of, uh, became this very bizarre Korea is the next anointed Israel like type of fire and brimstone and you know uh theology and so he raised my dad very and my whole family like I our church is the only church with the truth and yes. you know but also very like strict in that every night they had to write 10 sins down if they didn't have 10 sins written down that they committed that day they would get punished so my dad would tell these stories about how he would have to like write down and make up sins that he did in order to not get punished but then if like some of the sins were too bad then he would get stripped down naked put outside like you know beaten all of the things like my dad has really horrible traumatizing stories. So his relationship with God is very, very, very complicated um, and traumatizing. And, you know, so he been since like 18 has been running away from God. So I, you know, as I was praying for him, I get this calling where God says 
to me in what I believe, whether it's an impression or audible or however you want to describe it, it was an experience by which I could sense God directly speaking in, in some format saying, if you give your life for me, I will save your dad. Exactly those words. Um, wow. And it, it meant it was like, give your life in vocational service. Like, you know, I could, that's, I knew the meaning of what it was. It wasn't just give my life to be a dedicated person to believe in Jesus. Cause that was already there. Um, and so I said, no, <laughs> I was I literally said, uh, no, what is that about? And I kept yes. praying. And then a second time, same exact phrase. If you give your life for me, I will save your dad. And I said, no. Um, and then, uh, you know, a little while, a third time, same exact phrase. And I said, okay, I'm going to stop praying now. And I'm going to get up. I'm going to go get some donuts and just hang out with my friends outside of this like prayer room that we were in. And I was like, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. This is literally um, like Samuel right now. Right. Right. And, like, so flashbacks. Right. Um, which ironically my mom said after, so anyway, we have this, I, I then start to feel this burden. Like I can't shake it off. Right. So annoying (laughs) that I, this is something I have to do. Now I was, I am not a kid that, you know, I know when people read my tweets and, and see my stuff online, I seem very, very strong headed, opinionated, very go getter, aggressive type of person. I'm actually really not. If you know, if anyone knows me, I am an Enneagram nine. I'm very much the peacemaker. I very much, you know, when you meet me in person, I'm like so compliant and understanding and empathizing and like all the things that nines are great at, but also all the horrible things that nines do, which is triangulation and not taking a stand, right? Yep. Thank the Lord for my wing eight, which is very, very buff, as my friends say. Um, And so, like, I think in this time period, like, my wing eight has grown so strong over the many, many, many years of my life as God has broken me down and refined me in the very, very, very freaking hot fire. Um, You know, I I was so I was not a demanding kid. I didn't say this is what I'm going to do and blah, blah, blah. And so. You know, I think my mom had a bit concern, like, is she going to like, why does she want to be a journalist? Both my parents wanted me to be a lawyer because I spoke really well um, and, and all of that. So uh, as I start in, like, feeling this burden, I approach my mom, <laughs> I ask her at dinner, like a, a week later, maybe two weeks later. And I say, mom, what do you think about me going into ministry? And, and in, did you, sorry, did you say you're in like 10th grade at this point? I'm a junior in high school, junior, right? Okay. And like getting towards the end of junior year of high school. Okay. And she is not happy. And so we had also a weird thing in our church where a lot of the young gentlemen who attended our college group or young adult group, because our church was super small, um, when they couldn't get a career path, they would end up going to seminary. So it was like this fallback backup plan, like just be a pastor then, right? If you're not good at anything else, just Just be a pastor. pastor. That's so easy. Yeah, I know. Um, So horrible. And so she said, are you worried you're not going to get into a good school? And that's why you are doing this. And I was like, no. Um, I mean, I wasn't like Ivy League, you know, straight A kind of student, but I there are so many universities available, you know, to a student in, in, in America. Right. And so I was like, no, I, I prayed and I feel like God is 
you know, really wanting me to do this. And she was like, I, I don't approve. This is no, this is not okay. And so I was like, okay, don't talk to mom about this subject matter yeah. anymore. Um, and I, again, very uncharacteristically of me just started calling up colleges to see where I would go. Um, and every day that passed by, I was more and more set and determined that this is what I needed to do. Every time I thought about not doing it and continuing on with my journalistic um, you know, goals, I would feel very uncomfortable and disturbed and not at peace and not you know, feeling like that was the right direction. Every time I thought about okay, going into some service capacity and being a pastor, I would feel this immense peace in my heart. Um, and so I started calling up colleges. And I think like a month later, or maybe two months later, we were back at the dinner table and my mom said, so whatever happened with that, you're going to go like to seminary and be a pastor thing. And I said, oh, I'm going to do it. And she said she was about to argue with me. And for the first time in the 17 years that she had raised me, she said, I looked at you and I could feel the presence of God like behind you, arms crossed saying, you challenge her, you challenge me. And she said, wow. for the first time as a mom, I felt so small in the room with you. Like this wow. was not my domain kind of thing. Um, and again, I was not that kind of child, right? Uh, my mom was the ruler of the household, very matriarchal, you know, family household that I grew up in. Um, and so hence started my path. My dad was still in Los Angeles. And so I came to LA to reconcile with him um, and attended uh, Biola and then went to Talbot. I was going to go to Fuller, but Talbot knocks off 17 units and saves me thousands and thousands of dollars. Oh. So I went to, and also I didn't have to do a thesis paper. So, um, yes, I know went, that very well. Yeah. I went to a seminary cause my dad worked at the college and I was well, like, exactly. So, and I, I loved it. I mean, I really, you know, I, I feel so thankful for the education that I received, yes. you know, as problematic as it is now, as you unpack certain things, I, I went during a time period where it was not very, like, it's just shifted so much. I hear the stories of current students who are attending my alma mater yes. and it breaks my heart with what's happening. Um, and, and some of the controversial, you know, partisanship that has, that exists now, granted, it was still very conservative and very evangelical, but we had props like, and I think I was just so lucky. Like my poli sci professor was one of the only Democrat um, professors and he was so formative. Like our, our class, we walked in and he had a, a stand in the room and say, okay, well, do you believe Jesus would be a Democrat or a Republican? Um, or you don't know. And so a, a majority of us said, we don't know. Obviously the other side said Republican and like one person said Democrat. And then we proceeded to, for the rest of the semester to go through public policy um, and comp in comparison to Jesus's uh, in wow. comparison to the gospel. What a class. And like, lay, yeah. and so I was super fortunate to be blessed by a lot of faculty that were not in the vein of, I think what exists now. Um, and you, you know, I had professors who fought in world wars. And so like your faith is just the, the way for me, it was like, you know, and, and when I went to school freshman year, I mean, 
John MacArthur, you know, Hank Hanegraaff, all those folks were the big, big names where cessation of gifts didn't exist. I mean, that was yep. a hot topic, right? Yes. In 1992. That was my school. That was yeah. like cessationism, dispensational yep. premillennialism. Totally. Like through and through. As was ours. We, you know, we're very dispensational and, you know, uh, no reformed at all whatsoever. So it's really, it's so interesting because I just recently went to a trip to Israel and the gentleman who led the tours, he kept saying, like, this is going to blow your mind. It's all so real. It's all so real. And I don't understand that because our theological training because of the dispensational nature of it all it was like very ingrained in jesus and his jewish identity so then when i started meeting white pastors who were like jesus is white i was like what seminary did you go to like and i told the gentleman who was leading the israel like tour i said like none of this is phenomenal to me because obviously jesus was jewish <laughs> Like there's nothing that is Anglo about Jesus. Right. Um, and so in that sense, I, I, as much as like, there's awful Zionistic tendencies that, you know, we need to unpack and to, you know, deconstruct and all of that. There are elements of it that I'm extremely grateful for that removes a lot of the white supremacy nature um, of his Jesus's identity. And, you know, the, the, all of the foundations of the Old Testament and et cetera. So I, I'm super grateful for that part, you know, but there, there are other complicated things like in my seminary, um, which, you know, John MacArthur was a faculty on the board or something like that. I can't remember, but like up and left Talbot because they started to allow women in the MDiv program, which is a pathway to ordination and ordination of women is just, you know, hell, hell in a basket. Right. And so the fact that even if I was one in four women only in the whole entire program, and I do not believe that number has increased very much. Um, the fact that they still were trying to at least approach the allowance of it, you know, I, I consider that to be some progress in that space. Um, and so, you know, and also basically my exegesis of the gospels class was crucial, crucial in my beginning journey of deconstructing evangelicalism from my very, very conservative evangelical school. So, you know, it was the first time I think I fully dove into the gospels and it was during the time period when mega church was the the big question like are mega churches the way to go seeker seeker sensitive seeker friendly what does it mean to be a local church and local community versus like a commuter church where you're serving the masses having a mass amount of resources being disneyland for families that are bringing their kids i mean we were especially in southern california that's a very right. relevant conversation for yes. that context. I mean, we had like 20 mega churches, right? Yeah. Just the population was just so gigantic where churches are, you know, gathering 10,000 people. And, and then, yeah, so we had a lot of those ecclesiological questions that we were asking. Um, and then here I am diving in and fully unpacking the gospels and saying, wait a minute, wait, just a freaking darn minute. Nothing about the current church reflects anything Jesus is saying. 
and everything of the current church is exactly the religious leaders that Jesus was like. It's almost scary. It's It's almost like once you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. Yeah. This is an ex of mine who I was helping him deconstruct. That's what he was saying. He's like, and now you've ruined me forever because he's like, everywhere I go, if I hear a sermon, I can't not see that it's not about the gospel. And it's a very sin management as Dallas Willard said, right. It's very, all of, all of those things. And so, so started the road for me of what does freedom mean um, and why Paul, like, you know, I grew up thinking the, the epistles were all about do's and don'ts and rules and regulations, when in actuality, once you start to take off all the shackles and, and start to really exegete everything out, Paul cannot shut up about freedom, right, and grace and all of these things. And so... Um, so that was the beginning part of my deconstruction of evangelicalism. And I were you, this was, this was just in seminary or had you already in like been I think in ministry? I, I had been in ministry. So from the get go, when I was 18, I started college. I started as an intern, um, volunteer and then intern. So I've been serving in some com- com- capacity. And then when I started seminary, um, I got my first ministry job as a middle school uh, junior high pastor. And so, um, and that was in 97 to date myself. Um, And I think, you know, I had in the, in the mid late nineties, that's still like, that's a pretty big deal. Like it would be a big deal in 2021, unfortunately. Yeah. But in 97, to ordain a woman to serve not as like a middle school director or a minister yeah. or whatever language yeah. you want to put on it, but like pastor, like or evangelist. Exactly. That's like, <laughs> that's a big deal. Right. And, you know, I still wasn't, I, I was still very entrenched in patriarchal things. I hadn't fully unpacked it. And so I was still not necessarily on the boat ready to, say like I myself wanted to be ordained that didn't mean I didn't believe in women ordination or support it I just didn't know if that was the place I wanted to be I was very life lifer youth pastor person and I was like do I need to be ordained for this I didn't really necessarily believe that um and my first ministry experience was fantastic I had a great team an amazing supportive you know uh supervisor it was such fun. Um, and then from there I ended up going to, uh, where did I go? I went to, um, another church that I served at for just a little bit. And then I went to the church, what I call the church from hell. Um, so I served in junior high capacity total as like an intern volunteer and then pastor for like nine years. And then I got this offer to go to high school ministry, which I was really excited about. Um, and it was a my first full-time gig because a lot of immigrants, so my setting for those who are listening, um, predominantly Korean immigrant church settings. And so there's mostly bivocational, not a lot of full-time positions um, given just for lack of resourcing. So that's a whole other thing of complaint that I have, you know, in lack of support for those, you know, adults that say, we love our youth kids, we love our kids, and they're the they're the most important. And yet you can't budget out like any of these things and you steal from our departments because you need equipment or whatever. <laughs> like, 
so many, I have so many stories. Um, and so, you know, and I think for me, you know, there was always a justice element about me since I was a little kid. Um, you know, if I saw something unfair or not right, I've, I've had a tendency to call it out, um, maybe not as strongly as I do now, but I definitely would recognize it and it would bother me. And, and so, you know, I think there was always a very like, uh, reaching out to the marginalized, to the those who are poor, like all those things were very much ingrained in me at all times. So like, even at my church that I was interning at um, during college, you know, um, there was these kids from the neighborhood uh, that were that were coming because they wanted to go to church, no parents, they were just from the neighborhood, right, literally lived down the street. Um, and they were hungry. And so, you know, they, they would come up and the, this like older woman, um, she was reprimanding them so harshly for like, why are you here? You don't belong to this church and all of this stuff. And just like my outrage. And so um, I said, what are you doing? They're here for children's ministry. Like you need to stop. I mean, this is unheard of for me as a young kid, like I'm 1920, reprimanding an elderly person, you know, in our immigrant church context, like I'm black sheep, right? Um, and so I, I, I took them over and I, in front of her, took the donut box, like, you know, and just carried it out. And I said, you have all the donuts that you want, right? Um, so I always kind of had that within me. And I just continually expanded the more I dove into the Bible um, and just continually did more ministry. And so you know, by the time I get to this high school ministry uh, or, you know, this high school director position, um, pastor position, it was so great. My friends recruited me in. So I was super excited. Uh, they had had a very big issue with the person who had served there before me. Um, they apparently found some marijuana on the roof. And in the middle of his sermon, he just started accusing all the students um, like whose marijuana it was. And so they, all the kids just left. Right. And so they had like seven kids left and the church was a thousand member church and seven youth kids. Right. So when I got hired, they were like, all oh, we just need you to bring back the kids. Right. That's like, that's all we want you to do. And so I start to, you know, dive in and, um, about a month into about a month into serving, they had, there were other stories that just already showed the dysfunctionality of the church, but then they had a problem upstairs in the adult ministry. So they needed to fire one of the pastors, but they didn't feel like they had like legitimate reasons or whatever. So then they started to, um, they implemented this policy of if you are in seminary, then you can't be full time, right? And so me being the nine that I am and a team player, I was like, I have one semester left. It's a three quarter class, a three unit class. It's fine. You know, and I'll just like go back full time in, in three months. Right. Yep. Um, lo and behold, within that three months, my supervisor got hired. My supervisor who did not at all believe women should get ordained, who oh, was no. like hardcore John Piper, like patriarchal, misogynistic, would argue with me and my coworkers every single week about why women should get should not get ordained, um, including one argument being that because women have menstrual cycles, we are not qualified to serve in ministry wow. in full capacity the way men are. Um, <laughs> so I got to serve under that gentleman for almost three years um and it was hell on earth it was oh awful. yikes 
And here I also am not only that, but like I have completely shifted how I had started doing youth ministry. Right. Um, and so I think I, I had a, I had one wing tendencies where I was very rigid and almost authoritarian ish in dealing with young kids. And um, as life crap continually happened, and as I continually got mature in my own theological understanding and learning and education, like who God is, again, my very freedom journey, what does it mean that we are walking with people and not telling people what to do? What does it mean that we emulate Jesus in how he was never authoritarian, even though he had the full authority of the whole entire expanse of the universe. Um, and so, you know, I, I really started to shift the way I was doing ministry by walking with students, not telling them answers, but rather, you know, making sure I ask more questions and I give more answers, like all the little things that, you know, I, I, I talk about when I do trainings and things like that. And it was, very not okay with the church that I was serving at. Um, yes. Because so, it's very much outside of the bounds of yes. what is typically associated with youth ministry, which is like, here's the answers, here's how to dismantle yep. apologetically yep. the quote unquote secular world. Here's yep. why safe sex for marriage. Here's yep. why, you know, all that stuff. And that has been my experience too, is like fit in our box, play in our sandbox. Yep. And if you start to look outside or start to question or start yeah. to have like curiosity or like desire for different perspectives start to yep. surface, it's like, shut it down. There's yep. no way like if you start, you know, one domino, then it's going to then you're going to lose yep. the whole Bible. And like, then where are you going to be? Absolutely. I mean, you know, they were like this and there was, you know, a small group of people and by people, I mean, parents who were very much against what I was bringing to the table. So I would do things like um, unpacking the gospel through Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know, I was doing things like outside of the box that kids are already watching. And so, you know, their, their whole perspective was, you should condemn them watching Friends. You should condemn them, you know, doing this. You should condemn them from all of that. Make sure that they are understanding how important it is to be abstinent, to, you know, live like this way, not do anything, be very good, generic, like um, upstanding, whatever upstanding means in their mentality, you know, in their mental framework. And I just wasn't following those rules. Because um, I was like, your kids are going, your kids cuss, your kids are going to be doing all this, right. And like, at that time, the big thing was, you know, smoking, um, not even just drugs, but you know, we had a couple of kids who were, again, doing some marijuana stuff. Um, which again, never did I approve of any of that. Like, I don't think you would, any of my students would ever say, oh yeah, Pastor Irene was super cool with me smoking. I mean, I was very upfront with them. I would say all the time, you know, as I'm sharing and preaching, you know, I would say even things like that smoking causes, you know, impotent, <laughs> like stunts right. your growth, all yeah. the things. I'm like, you need to understand the the detriments. And the thing is, a lot of these kids started smoking when they were 12, which the statistics prove that kids, people who smoke start at the age of 12, 13, right? So by the time they're 16 years old and they come to me, they're like fully addicted. So I'm like, what does it matter that I'm walking with them and they come to, the, isn't the most Which is important. not, that's not like a Wednesday night issue of like, hey, let's open our Bibles and let's see why smoking, exactly. it's like, 
dude, there are so many things at play right now that exactly. don't have anything to do with youth group. Like, right. Let's press and isn't pause it here. more important that every single kid who was struggling to quit smoking talk to me about their problem? I knew every single kid in the youth group because they would come to me and I would ask them how they're doing. And I would say, how many days has it been? And they would say, like, I effed up. I got into a huge fight with my mom yesterday. She made me so angry. So I just had to smoke again. And I'm like, okay. Did you smoke today? Today is Sunday. And they're like, no, I haven't. Well, then today is day one. Let's just start over again. And that's the journey that we would go on, right? And it was with everything. It wasn't just smoking. It was with dating. It was with even having sex. It was with all of these things that I was a safe place for students. Our youth group was a safe place for students to feel like they could come and share anything and everything without fear of being judged. Um, and I, I share this repeatedly all the time, you know, that in our, in the research that we show at the Fuller Youth Institute, they have this, you know, whole research called Sticky Faith, where, you know, it shows that kids who did not work a hundred percent abstinent from drinking, you know, when they graduated from high school were, had a 70% jump in increase in drinking. Right. And it, like the, the graph of showing that was so in to my certain, you know, people who were above me leading this project disturbing. It's not disturbing to me. I mean, like, obviously they're repressed. They're going to go partying when they go off to college. Cause they don't, that's what eat, kids do. It's like exactly. youth groups sucked. And I exactly. hated it and I wasn't allowed to do anything. Now I can do everything. And so I'm just going to go ham. Exactly. And every, and the majority of kids who were in that research said that they liked their youth leader. Okay. So yay, you were popular, but a majority of them, I believe the number was like 80 some percent did not feel that youth group was a place for where they could share their innermost thoughts and share what was happening in their lives, that they played a lot of games but that also youth ministry did not prepare them for life, right? And before I even knew this research, I was like, we're only going to be with them for max number of years. My job isn't here to mold them so that they could be little robots regurgitating bits of information. Our job is to make sure when they get out of youth ministry that they're ready for the big questions because life sucks and life is hard. And how are we helping these kids understand who God is in the midst of life being painful and that God doesn't answer all the questions in this nice little bow wrapped up like my own life experience experience, my senior pastor from my high school raped me. How do I reconcile that with a big grand God? Where was God in the midst of that? Was I praying desperately that something would happen to rescue me? Absolutely. Did God show up? Absolutely not. How do I deal with that? Like, what does that mean? Right. And what does it mean that I can still have faith in God and, and find peace in that and find not answers because there are no answers, right? But find some sort of way to reconcile that and to understand that God grieves with me in that pain, that, you know, there we harm and hurt each other as humans. And that's the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is not your stupid Christian bumper sticker, Jesus and follow Jesus and all the, you know, life answers is going to be great. No, it's so will effing not, right? Like, shit will definitely happen. And, yes. and the whole point of everything in scripture is that shit happens and God, 
agrees with us and hurts with us and wants us to be better to each other and to be there for each other. And, and Jesus is showing us that way. And so as a youth pastor, do we not want to show that pathway to our students, right? And to say, I don't know why your parents are getting divorced. I don't know why your mom sucks. I don't know why your dad won't come home. I don't know why your brother is being this way. And I don't know why your friends are, you know, asses and that you are alone and like bullied at school. I don't have the answer, but I'm here to help. And I'm here to journey with you. And I'm here to like, let's figure this out together. Um, and understand that in the midst of this, somehow we're going to figure it out and God's going to give us wisdom. And even in that, like to say all of that in a very, as much as possible, non-cheesy way, right? To say, we're God is going to give us all the answers. Because no, sometimes God does not at all give us any of the answers. Yes, rarely um, does. Right. And, 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 and that's okay. And we need to figure out then what does that all mean as we are trying to create this hallmarky Disney sitcom-y, all things will tie up, loose ends will tie up at the end of this 30 minutes and, and we'll be all feel goody. And so let's have pizza and games and then youth group is done. Okay, now go home and you're a great Christian kid, you know? And, and so it's all of that, you know, it wasn't to the satisfaction of this church. And so I ended up getting fired. Right. And I, I remember, um, being, it was in the middle of the night. It was like a few weeks out. Um, I was watching Oprah. It was like one in the morning repeat Oprah episode. And it was the one where this girl, her name is Jennifer. I can't remember her last name. Um, she was a sophomore in college, beautiful girl. Uh, she was going to a party with two of her girlfriends and they were waiting at the stoplight and a young kid, a junior in high school, um, was driving home drunk from a party, crashed into their car, the car caught on fire and her two friends died. And she had third and fourth degree burns all over her body. And she has no eyelids. Um, her dad is a single dad. She has no fingers. And so he has to dress her every morning. I mean, if you look at her, she looks like melted candle. And he has to drop, uh, put drops in her eyes every 30 minutes because she doesn't blink. So the moisture doesn't retain in her eyes. Um, it was a such a painful episode to watch. Not a dry eye in the audience. Um, you know, Oprah asking really difficult questions like, do you wish you had died? You know, what is it that help, keeps you to go on living? All the things. The young boy is in jail serving time for involuntary manslaughter, two counts. Um, and his mom was on the show to issue an apology to this young girl. And she couldn't get through, like, she couldn't get through it because she was just crying so, um, so much and so apologetic, but she just couldn't even get the words out. And Oprah asks her, what do you want to tell parents across the country and the world, um, what you have learned through this experience and what they should understand? And she said, I raised my son in a black and white world of do's and don'ts. Um, and if I could tell every parent in the world, your child is going to do things that you do not approve of. They're going to drink. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to make these decisions that are potentially monumentally devastating for them. And if I could go back, she said, I would tell my son 
I do not approve of you drinking, but if you find yourself in a situation where you are compromised, pick up the phone and give me a call. You won't get grounded. I'm not going to punish you. Let's just get you home safe. I will come pick you up no matter where you are. And I was screaming in my bedroom, pointing at the television. I was like, that, that, that is it right there. Like that's the gospel message right there. That's exactly what Jesus was doing, wow. right? And what youth ministry wow. is supposed to be all about. And it's not about, again, as Dallas will have said, raising kids to understand the gospel, sin management, where it's a checkmark list of do's and don'ts and this and that. And that was the whole point of Jesus saying, it is finished. It's done. We are complete. That's the whole point of Galatians, right? We are completely finished and free to choose whatever we wish to do. But not all of those choices are beneficial if for ourselves, for each other, for society, like all of the things. Rupert Murdoch absolutely has the freedom and choice through the salvation that Jesus has died for all sins of the world, past, present, and future, to be the scumbag that he is and, you know, promoting hatred and misogyny and lies and all the things, you know, he has every choice to do that, but though, and get wealthy, fat, wealthy off of all of that, right? All of those choices, but it is not beneficial in the eyes of God, and it is not beneficial in the eyes of society, it is not beneficial to one another, systemically, all the things, right? Um, and we have to understand and unpack what that means as we read through scripture, as we're teaching our young people, what does it mean to live a life for Jesus? What does it mean to live a life in 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 God, that we are here to serve one another, to look at each other as the least and last among us as, as somebody who we would potentially deem lower than us to be greater than us, right? All the things that, that scripture tells us about that is a theology from below a perspective unpacking the Bible, that it's not about our individualistic freedom to do whatever the F we want, but it's about our choice to look at how we are integrated with one another that we are all part of one body that we are all part of yeah. one humanity that we're wow. all part of and now with globalization even more so like what i choose to do here with the tomatoes that i pick and the fruit that i eat and the purchases that i buy and like all of the things like it has a global effect on people around the world and we don't think about that that me buying coffee beans affects what is happening in countries around the world because of commercialized farming now that is ruining countries, ruining ways of life, you know, in other parts of the world, even if my freaking coffee is delicious and it's something that I want to enjoy in my life, um, in the midst of my self-care, what does it mean that I am conscientiously understanding and aware of like the decisions that I'm making? And it's not to say like, it's not to say that you have to be perfect in all of that, but it's to say, okay, how can I, how can I try to, in the most, most capacity that I have as an individual, be connected to the greater society and globally and understanding that it works together, not just this either or, right? And how can we help our students become more aware of that on a daily basis in every moment of their life and what that all means?
and and it's it's hard and that nothing about nothing in bible says that anything about living this conscientious life should be easy it's not if the only thing i I say this to students all the time the only thing the bible promises is that life is going to be really 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 hard that's the only thing the the bible promises us which you don't even have to be a christian to agree with exactly and so yeah but we've we have made it that if you buy this little thing if you buy this little charm you buy this little splinter of the cross like nothing of the the medieval dark age time has gone away from second third century second century church purchase this little thing this little bumper sticker and you know you're a good christian and you're okay you don't have to worry about racism you don't have to worry about sexism you don't have to worry about anything and and that influenced too a lot like starting from 2001 you know i started asking the question about the gay community, like, what is the church doing? And nobody wanted to talk about it. Like at that time, it was like, what are you smoking, Irene? Like, why are you so controversial? (laughs) Why are you so anti Jesus? And I'm like, there's nothing about my question that's anti Jesus. Um, I'm sorry, did Jesus not minister to the lepers? Was the lepers not the ones who were kept out of the temple gates and Jesus came and said, what are you doing? Wasn't Jesus the one through his death and resurrection that tore the temple curtain so that everybody can have access to God? So why are you telling gay people that they have to be converted in order to have a relationship with Jesus? What is wrong with this picture? so much we could talk about and i think that's you know as we who are either in or have been in youth ministry that has been one of the really really important messages that most people get wrong in youth ministry is that this is not about helping kids learn the quote unquote truth both of us have seen the problems and you know the the challenging and the harmful and the abusive things about youth ministry and i would love to spend a little bit of time talking about the future of youth ministry so most of our listeners myself included um if they grew up in the church they most likely grew up in this toxic like you said youth ministry mega church model of heteronormativity and homophobia and terrible terrible theology and white supremacy and purity culture and all of those things. And even though most, if not all of us would agree, that's definitely not the way forward. A lot of us don't really know what's next, but what, what are some like ways that you can frame youth ministry for maybe somebody listening to this, who is a youth pastor or works in youth ministry or cares a lot about young people and spiritual formation of young people, but is like, man, all of that sounds awesome. But like, I still have the expectations of parents and people who are overseeing me that like, you have to do this. I don't want to do that, but I don't really know where to go from there. What would you, what advice could you give to myself and our listeners about the way forward with youth ministry? Yes. Um, such a good question. (laughs) Whole episode. We could talk about that. Right. Um, I would, I would say, you know, and I do this a lot with my own training. Like I wish if I could go back and talk to my 30 year old self, um, I think, and you and I talked about this briefly, um, your own story of like, I, I didn't do a good job leading up and I was very much like 
deep-seated in my own processing of this is not right and we have to deconstruct this, which was not inaccurate, right? Like everything that I did in that Church from Hell high school ministry, I think I, I would say the ministry part of me, I hit it on the nail. I still have relationship with those students who are now parents themselves, married. Like, I mean, you know, we, so many of my students affirm me on the daily of, you know, they, the only reason they're still connected to faith is because in some way, shape or form our the experience there kept them hoping and understanding there was a way to have a relationship with God that they that like surpasses what they had experienced prior to that. Right. Um, and so the ministry part of it, the deconstruction part of it, I did well. What I didn't do well was bring people on board. I didn't bring the parents on board. I didn't bring the leadership on board. I didn't bring a support system on board. And even some of the volunteers, um, I just ended up, they all, they like quit if they weren't like, I was like, if you're not on board with the vision that we're going to do, bye, see ya, right? Um, and I had been told before entering that, you know, ministry is is a trifold where it's ministry ministry to the kids, ministry to parents, and ministry to your volunteers. And I hated that because I was like, I'm, I'm here for the kids, right? <laughs> like, I'm not, I, didn't, I hate adult ministry. That's why I don't want to do adult ministry. Um, and unfortunately, so unfortunately, now, as I look back, that was some really good, wise advice that I was given that I completely disregarded. Um, and so I, I keep saying it. I just say it with a lot of caveat that my predecessor who advised that to me did not say. It sucks. I, it fully sucks because adults suck. And parents honestly kind of suck. Um, but also I, I share, I, I do have more empathy and understanding of parents now that I did a mathematical thing where I was like, okay, you know, I've been part of youth ministry since I was 18. So it has been part of my mental framework all the time. I, not only did I write straight out of adolescence, go into teaching. So like, it's all fresh on my mind, then my research and my experience and like my, all of the stuff, I'm just forever in that world. If you're a regular Joe Schmo person, you leave high school, you never want to think about high school because it was God awful experience unless you were a jock or whatever and you were the star, then you can't get out of high school. But that's a whole other story. But say like normal person, you leave high school, you want to forget it, you go to college, you struggle through college, then you go struggle through a career, you get married or whatever. And like, say you even get married early at the age of 23. And then you have a baby right away. It's another 12 years before that kid turns into a teenager. That's like 15 years, 16, 17 years of not at all thinking about adolescence. So then it's like 18 years later and your child is in your mind becoming this demon child, right? Because they were sweet and loving and kissing you and saying, mommy, I love you all the time to now like get off my back lady or person and I don't want to talk to you and like screaming at you because you're the worst person on the entire planet. So I, knowing the math, I, I get it now. And, and parents are at a loss and they have so much pressure and they're trying to juggle their own life yes. journey and all yes. the things they need so much help, not in a pathetic way, but in a, let's be on the same team together kind of thing. Totally. Right. And I did not have that perspective when I was 30. And I just, 
I just was continually like, why are you like this? Why do you not understand that you drawing the line like that or going the other extreme, which is not punishing your kids at all and not having hard conversations with them because you don't want to deal with your kids. Just let and them it was do whatever. So, right. And it was so much coaching, like even coaching them to learn how to ground them in a way that honors their child's autonomy, but also teaches them a lesson about their humanity and like responsibility and all these things, right? It's so much coaching to parents. And the thing is, we're only with them 10 hours a week. Like your parent, the parents are with them a freaking lot longer hours than that. And so the parents are the key, right? And I just, I wish I had known that better. Um, and I know for those of you who might be listening, who are in immigrant church settings, like I was, Language is a barrier. I didn't. I don't speak Korean very well. Um, I can order food and I could go to the bathroom and I could survive in the country, but like I would never be able to get a job, right? Um, and and so it's difficult. And and there's a respectability that happens, a hierarchy. There's all these cultural elements that make complicate the whole thing. Um, and so I, I, you know, for whatever the barriers are, and everybody's in your church setting, whether you are very progressive in your own framework, and you are at a Baga church, and like my friend, she is very progressive, and she is in North Dakota, and she, like, wherever she goes, she's going to be at a Baga church. Um, and so, you know, you may be in an environment like that. And so, you know, trying to have this perspective about, about leading up well. So read leadership books by which you need to learn how to lead up well. Um, I think one of the key things that I wish I had known back then was Ron Heifetz when he talks about adaptive leadership. Um, if you don't know, pick up a lot of books with that, talking about adaptive leadership, what change leadership looks like, and the just understanding that people are not resistant to change, but are resistant to law. They don't have a fear of change. They have a fear of loss. And that, like, if I just had known that, what does it mean that these people are fearful of? What are these parents really afraid of? What are these MAGA folks really afraid of? And I know it's illogical in my mind because I've done the deconstruction, but they have not. And so how can we, again, emulate Jesus? And if I, if I were to fully own it, you know, and I say this all the time, where I screwed up was that I judged these people just as much as they judged me. I was not being Jesus-like to them. I fully was like, may they suffer, they're pathetic, they're not worth time, like all the things that Jesus doesn't call me to be. And so, you know, we ourselves, even if we are correct in our vision and mission and understanding and theology and ecclesiology, you got all the checkmark boxes. If you are lacking in empathy, then you are literally being a religious leader. You have all the answers on the administrative implementation, ministry, philosophy, all of that. You got all of that down, all the right answers. And now you are being literally a fundamentalist about it to these people who have are fully ignorant of it. Right. And so what is the difference? There is no difference. And that's a hard pill to freaking swallow. And so um, how can you examine your own self when you are frustrated, again, fully legitimate in your frustrations, all of the things, but how can you continually deepen yourself in the heart of Jesus? What would Jesus say? Because if we look at scripture, 
Jesus never condemns the religious leaders. He is crying out to them to hear him, to understand. And Paul is the same. That's why we go into that whole entire weird Romans 12 chapter where everyone's like, all of a sudden Paul comes out of left field where he's talking about Israel and his heart for Israel and blah, 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 all this stuff. And everyone's like, what does this have to do with anything with what he was saying previously? Is because at the end of the day, their hearts were about the freedom for all people, right? Including the religious leaders. And we, as people who are in this in-between phase where we are aware yet we can't fully leave because whether our circumstances means that we are surrounded or we still have a heart for that place, um, how can we equip ourselves to be better leaders in, in that to those that those people groups, right? And again, I know in the midst of juggling and trying to create program and trying to do visitations and trying to, you know, minister and counsel and mediate and all the things that you already have to do with youth ministry to then like implement that other whole other program to parents. I get it. It's like, you're not paid enough. Absolutely. You're not paid enough to do that. Um, but that wasn't the question. Uh, <laughs> the question was, what should we do? And then on top of that, I think the second part, so our posture and our equipping ourselves better as leaders um, leading up is the number one. And then, you know, really the second part is get people on your side. Um, and so even if that's, you know, who are the core people who could start doing the legwork for you? I a lot of us as youth pastors, um, we tend to be renegades and we tend to be like lone wolfy a bit, you know, and we tend to be very rebellious in the way that we lead because um, we we're like the rebel kid. We're the we're the person in the group that like goes against the flow. Right. And, and all of that. Um, that sucks. And that's stupid. Don't do that. I did that. And I just got fired. Um, <laughs> and so what you, what you, you need to get people, some people who are key voices, um, get them on your side. I, I hate playing the game and I hate doing the dance, but game of Thrones, man, you got to game of Thrones it. Um, and I'm not saying to do it in a way that has evil intentions, but I, and I say Baelish cause I, I like saying Baelish better than um, Varys because his name is not as fun to say, but <laughs> you got to Baelish your way through this. Yeah. And like, you know, and, and again, not in an evil sort of way, but like, as Jesus said, you know, you, you have to be shrewd, right? Shrewd as snakes. Um, it, it, because Jesus was not ignorant of what it takes, the fact of like what it means. It, it, Jesus was not idiotic or meek or compliant or any of those things right and we we somehow have again watered him down and made jesus so generic he was shrewd as fuck when it came to dealing with the religious leaders he knew their intention he was ahead of them ahead of the curve whenever they tried to throw some question at him he was like boom i'm gonna throw you a curveball right back at you you literally couldn't them- touch him he was so right. adaptable. He was so like, yeah, you come at me with this. I'm going to be. Exactly. Yeah, totally. So you, Jesus knew how to Game of Thrones, the whole shit out of that. Why are we not doing that? 
get key people in your team, in your camp, right? And again, you got to check your heart with God. You got to check your ego with God. Every morning you wake up, why are you doing this? Are you doing this so that you can get more powerful in the church? Check that at the altar because you have to do this in order for the long run, for the sake of kids, for the sake of, again, you got all the checkmark lists here. Like you've got the mission, you've got the right, where the direction is going, your vision, it, it is all in there. The question is, are you going to get these key people so that other people can start to grow? Not so that you can overpower other people, wow. but it's to help key people to do also do work with you and maybe even more effectively do the work than you would to get folks converted and changed and growing and educated and like all the things that we wish. And it's not to say that they have to be fully on board. It's just to at least help folks be open. And same with you. How can we be open to hearing one another and understanding what is it about accepting queer people that is making you so afraid let's talk about it right not like you're wrong um and condemning and judging but saying what is happening there right and and again getting people on board in your camp the camp of let's figure this out together the camp of let's help everybody grow with one another right um and, and, and then the third thing is know when you have to shake the dust off of your feet. Um, and I, and I think that that's a hard thing for us to accept because we have been so ingrained with, if you leave, if you quit, um, you are a failure, you are unfaithful to God, you aren't, you know, you are betraying the calling, all the things, right? And so we wait and we wait and we, we let ourselves stay in a very, very harmful situation um, for various reasons. Again, we we want to be committed. We want to see, you know, be faithful to God. We have savior complexes. We think we could like fix everything. Um, and maybe you just aren't the person. You are the person who is simply tilling the soil. You're not even the person who's going to be planting the seeds. Um, I, I tend to, I think you, you shared this and I am so connected with you sharing this. I am sometimes too ahead of the, the game. I tend to like, and in my previous workplace too, they were like, Irene, you have a tendency to be a, the prophetic voice. The prophetic voice is not the voice to make change happen. The prophetic voice is the voice that is going to till the soil. We're getting the rocks out and it's a freaking hard job to do, right? Yes. And when it's time, somebody else, we've got to tag them in. They're the one that's going to start planting the soil, the planting the seeds in the soil. I, that's not my job necessarily. Right. Wow. And I have to be okay with that. Does my ego like that? No. I want to take credit. I want to, I want to see the fruit of my labor. And yes. I want to, I want to get the accolades. I'm a healthy nine. I'm, I integrate to a three. I'm super competitive. Right? Yes. Like, you know, my husband says it, you're like passive aggressively competitive. You don't <laughs> seem competitive, but you're so competitive. Right. Um, and, and that's the thing. And so like my ego absolutely wants to get the accolades, wants to absolutely be patted on the head and be like, Oh, because of Irene, that's why my life changed. Right. Um, but that's not like if you're so far ahead of the curve that people don't remember the, the hard labor that you did in that, that's okay. 
And that is God knows that, knows the work that you have done. And that's okay that you are now saying my time, I'm clocking out, it's done. And then somebody else, and and how can you bring, maybe you bring someone else on who is not as controversial as you, who is not as, you know, progressive as you are, who is not as um, renegade, somebody who is more an Obama, who will be more willing to play the middle, the mediator, right, role. And that's okay. Again, like, I think, you know, we tend to not want to believe that our egos are there, but, but we have to constantly be checking that. Um, and, and so if it's time for you to leave, if, it, if you are feeling your heart getting hardened to people in, in frustration, in fatigue, in anger, um, in, in any way, shape or form that is not then sitting in love and compassion and empathy and a Jesus-like heart, you have to begin to ask these hard questions. Is it time for me to leave? Have I completed what I needed to complete here? Um, and this is enough of the work to be done because somebody else will take over, right? Um, and I talked to my coworker afterwards, um, you know, I told him he was frustrated because they were not, he was not getting a full-time job and he had to work two jobs for benefits and paying bills. And I said, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm the reason you're not getting a full-time job. And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, because our supervisor didn't believe women should be in ministry. I said, you're the junior high pastor. I'm the high school pastor. If you get a full-time job, I got to get a full-time job. He does not want that to happen. I said, you wait two weeks after I'm out the door, you're going to get a full-time offer on the table. I get fired. Three weeks later, he got a full-time offer on the table. And I talked to him and he implemented a lot of the things that I had done. Um, we did these things because uh, I did some cell groups meeting locally because we were a very commuter church. And it was a whole brand new thing that nobody in a Korean church had ever done. Um, and again, you know, I was very much building the model. And I said, so tell me why it worked for you and why it didn't work for me. And he was like, because you broke the mold, Irene. He's like, you broke the ground. And it was super easy for me to come in then and implement that like a couple of years after you did. And they, like people were starting to see the vision again later on. Like, and did that hurt my pride? Absolutely. Like, what is it about me that like they didn't buy into the sales pitch that I was giving them, right? But at the end of the day, if, if kids were affected and their lives were changed in God's eyes, what does it matter? Right. Um, and we have to say amen to that. And, and it's really hard to, um, but that's not up to us. That's, that's up to whatever God's timing is in the midst of that. So the third advice I would give is if it's, if it's time for you to leave because it's too, it's getting too suffocating and too difficult to tread water in a tank of sharks, um, then you it's it's okay it's fully okay for you to go um and and give yourself permission for that wow um i mean yes and amen i feel like if if you're listening to this and you're driving and you're not like sitting at your desk or something you need to go back to like <laughs> the beginning of the episode and re-listen with a pen and a notebook um because i think there is just so much so much of a prophetic voice in that. And I resonate so deeply with, I mean, that was a lot of my journey. A lot of my mm -hmm. immaturity as a leader was feeling so called to my prophetic voice in the world that I forgot the role of a prophet 
And the role of a prophet's a really hard one. And I actually think in a lot of ways, youth ministry is a prophetic role because you have to be the one who is looking beyond what we're doing right now. You have to think beyond, you know, just this coming weekend or the next sermon series. You're like, I got kids who are moving so much faster than we are as a community. That's the role of a prophetic leader is like casting the vision for the future of the kingdom of God in the world. And yeah, yeah, I feel like I could literally talk with you forever for hours. I want to respect your time. Uh, Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for giving language and a helpful grid for those of us who serve in these spaces to continue to process all of this in a way that hopefully leads to a community of love and a place of justice and liberation in the world and helping young people become all that they were meant to be in the world. I think that you are such a gift to me and to our listeners and the church at large, and I'm so thankful for your wisdom Um, As we close, for listeners who want to stay up to date on what you're doing, what are some ways for them to support you or to follow you? Is there anything you kind of want to plug as we close? Yeah. um, If you are interested, um, so I'm trying to launch out my new organization, um, which is called The In-Between, because, and our catchphrase is, we really believe the deepest, most transformational learning happens in the in-between space, which is the most difficult ambiguous liminal space um and we don't we always go especially like movies books you know it's very like revelation point a light bulb goes off and then you skip to point z which is now you're the expert you're fully aware all this learning happens in that in-between space right um i i say it all the time in in like tv shows or movies where they they start a conversation they get in the car and then they get to point b and then they like keep going with the conversation and i'm like what did you all talk about for the 45 minutes that you were driving in the car? Like that in between vital, vital times. I mean, you, those of you in youth ministry know some of the most important moments in youth ministry happens on that car ride home that you're dropping students off, right? It's not during youth ministry. It's during that time when you're in the car, picking kids up and talking with them in that boring space, in that very liminal space, in that in-between space. Um, And so we're calling our org the in-between. We're launching off a certificate program. So if you are interested in getting trained from folks who have influenced and taught me, um, we have four faculty who are going to be leading four different classes. Uh, One is a foundational uh, theology class, and then one is a self-care um, and self-awareness class. And then another is a uh, organizational leadership class. And then the fourth final class is a community development class. Um, if you are interested in being a part of that, we're launching that at the end of August. So go to the findingtheinbetween.com and you can sign up for that um, or awesome. I can tell you more about it. Um, and we will hopefully in a few months be launching off a bunch of classes that will have various different subject matters. Obviously, we're going to have a full track for those who are doing youth development and youth ministry. Um, and it could be nonprofit. It could be directly in church ministry. Um, and the community that we're mostly serving are those who are in themselves in the in-between space, who are not in evangelical spaces anymore, but they're not quite in the ex-evangelical, I'm out of church fully um, you know, mode also. So a lot of us are in that in-between space and how can we continue to grow and find process and find answers to these questions that we have. Um, and so that's what I'm hoping to bring to the table. 
If you want to follow me, everything is Irene M as in Michelle Cho on all social media accounts. So I'm really kind of in your face on Twitter and more reflective on Facebook. Um, so you can follow me on Facebook and then I do more fun stuff on Instagram. That's awesome. And I'm a, I'm a lurker on TikTok. I don't really post anything. <laughs> Same. I have one. I've never posted I'm anything. Full it's lurker. Just to watch, watch yep. everybody's. Uh, well, amazing. We'll be sure to link all of that in the show notes below so you can have quick and easy access to that. Um, Irene, thank you again so much. It was Thanks such a me. blessing and a joy to be able to talk with you. I feel like I'm going to be thinking about this conversation for very long time i feel so ministered and inspired and encouraged and i feel like again you just have such a prophetic voice and um i'm thankful that you took some time to talk with us today you're such a gift thanks for having me well if this was your first time listening this podcast is hosted by me and my wife nicole and sometimes we take time to have conversations with amazing people doing amazing work We are bivocational pastors and leaders in Spokane, Washington, and we keep this podcast sponsor and ad-free as an act of justice. So if you're able to become a Patreon member and support the work we're doing, we'd love to invite you to do so by visiting our Patreon page below. This episode was written, produced, and edited by us, Joseph and Nicole, with music from Miami Nights 1984 and Eric Godlow. Grace and peace to all of you. We love you, and we'll see you next time.